is just um this is supposed to be best more of like a general q a but uh the main the main thing that uh we here at youth apologetics are interested in from you is your content on mary so um can you give like a brief overview of on um, the four marian dogmas and like where they each stem from you got it all right let me close my door here yes sir all right first well, of all i we're actually going to record this, so um, I'm just going to give you a quick introduction for anyone watching. Sure. Uh, you, you need no introduction to this crowd, but just in case anyone on YouTube is watching, I'll give you a quick introduction. All right. Uh, let's say a quick prayer together, could we? Yes, please. All right. Name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of your daughter the daughter of Zion. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your mother and our mother. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of your spouse. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to dive in over this next hour, hour and a half, the truth concerning our blessed mother. Help us to grow to love her in a deeper way, to appreciate her, to devote ourselves to her, because we know that she always leads us to you. And so we ask all of this in the name of her divine son, Jesus Christ, as we pray together, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Joseph. Pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas. Pray for us. St. Justin Martyr, pray for us. St. Catherine of Alexandria, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, folks, that's, I always invoke those three saints because they are the patron saints of apologists. That is Thomas Aquinas, Justin Martyr, and Catherine of Alexandria. But if I could just briefly, uh, in, in talking about the four Marian dogmas, of course, as you guys know, the first, the greatest of all of the Marian dogmas is the Theotokos, that is the God-bearer Mary as defined infallibly by Pius XII in the great apostolic constitution, Munificentissimus Deus of 1950. Um, I'm sorry, that's the assumption. Let's go back to, we're talking mother of God here, Council of Ephesus, 431. Uh, by the way, in my last class, I was just talking about that. <laughs> That's why I'm still there. The Council of Ephesus, of course, defined infallibly against the heretic Nestorius, Mary as mother of God. And in fact, you know, this Marian dogma is so important because it is, to use Thomistic language, the final cause of all the other Marian dogmas. What does final cause mean? A final cause is that for which another thing follows. In other words, it's because of Mary and her great calling to be the mother of God that she was immaculately conceived, right? In order to prepare her to be the mother of God. It's because of that great calling to be the mother of God that of course she would be assumed into heaven because she was prepared specially in the Immaculate Conception and it follows 
thou wilt not allow thy holy one to suffer corruption, that she would be assumed into heaven. And in fact, it's because she's the mother of God that she would be perpetual virgin because she was prepared by God to be the spouse of the Holy Spirit to become the mother of God, hence perpetual virginity, because it's absolutely absurd to think, as uh, St. Jerome famously said, how dare you, Helvidius, ever even imagine that Joseph could touch Mary, the temple of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and such. And so that's what we mean by the mother of God being the final cause of all other Marian dignities. And we see it defined at the Council of Ephesus. And there were two main verses of scripture the Council Fathers used at the Council in their uh, defining of Mary as mother of God. And one is Luke chapter one, verse 43, where Elizabeth, as you know, as soon as Mary conceived Jesus in her womb, the Bible says she made haste in Luke chapter one to go visit her cousin or relative Greek word sungenes, which is a relative, may have been a cousin, may have been a more extended relative, but her cousin, let's say Elizabeth, and the scripture says at the sound of her salutation, all she had to do was walk in the house and say, how you doing, Elizabeth? And literally all heaven broke loose, right? Elizabeth says, at the sound of thy salutation, the babe leapt in my womb. And we know Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit, sanctified in his mother's womb. And Elizabeth exclaims under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, blessed are you. This is verse 42, by the way, in Luke chapter 1. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And who am I? That the mother of my Lord should come unto me. The council fathers said, there we have a clear reference to Mary as mother of God. Notice, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come unto me? Now, we should know, guys, apologetically, many of our Protestant friends, Dr. Walter Martin, Dr. Eric Svensson, many others, will claim that doesn't say mother of God. It says mother of the Lord, right? Now, what's the problem with that? We all know. Right? Well, last time I checked, the Lord is God, number one. But number two, and in defense of our Protestant friends, it is true that the word kurios, the Lord, can be used and is often in sacred scripture for some, you know, an earthly potentate, a magistrate, for example, some earthly authority can be referred to as kurios, right? So how do we know that Luke chapter 1, verse 43 is not referring to that? Well, there are a couple of ways. Number one, we can know that Elizabeth is quoting almost verbatim 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9, where King David experiences a powerful manifestation of the power of the old covenant ark. Elizabeth experienced a powerful manifestation of the power of the new covenant ark who is married, who is Mary, but David exclaims, Who am I that the ark of my Lord should come unto me? And he has the ark, of course, sent to the house of Abedum there in verse 11. For how long? Three months. Luke chapter 1, verse 56. Of course, the Bible says Mary remained with 
Elizabeth for three months. There's all sorts of parallels here, right? David leaps before the ark. John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb for joy at the presence of the new covenant ark. But the key point here for mother of God is to remember that when Elizabeth's quoting 2 Samuel 6, 9, where David says, who am I that the ark of my Lord should come to me? He's not talking about the ark of some earthly potentate, right? He's talking about the ark of almighty God. Now you as young budding apologists know typology. Types are always inferior to their new covenant fulfillment. So to say that David using those words refers to the ark of almighty God and then Elizabeth would be referring to the ark of some earthly potentate, that's absurd. Of course, the New Testament more glorious. So of course, we're talking about the ark of almighty God. But the most important point here I'll make real quick here is when you're referring to the mother of God, it is devastating. And I think the mother of God, guys, is, is perhaps the greatest example of how the Marian dogmas affect our Catholic faith, affect our Christian faith. They are essential for our salvation, folks. I know a lot of people are scandalized. What? I got to believe in the mother of God to get to heaven? Yes. Because if you deny it, you're going to end up missing it on Jesus, right? Hang on to that. But let's uh, talk about this just for a second. Um, I remember, and you guys have read my book, right? Behold Your Mother. Have you guys read it? If not, you need to get it. <laughs> okay. Behold Your Mother. A biblical and historical defense of the Marian doctrines. But I tell the story in there of years ago, 34 years ago, in fact, I watched a debate between my, that I called spiritual mentor from afar, Dr. Walter Martin, when I was Protestant, was debating Father Mitchell Pacwa, who has since become a very dear friend of mine. But he was debating Pacwa, and I was excited because I was in the midst of studying Catholicism, and I thought, okay, I'll go watch Dr. Martin destroy this crazy, confused Jesuit and save my Protestantism, right? Well, it didn't work out that way because Walter Martin uh, really, in many ways, got his hat handed to him that day. But this, in this instance in particular, see, Walter Martin made the argument, the same argument I did against the mother of God. He said, you know, again, that, that this is not talking about God here, but it's talk, it really when Elizabeth says the mother of my Lord, he's not referring to divinity here or she. She's not referring to divinity. She's referring to the man, Jesus Christ, not to God. So Mary then didn't give birth to God. She gave birth to the man, Jesus Christ, right? Well, what's the problem with this? You are effectively creating two persons in Christ, and you can't even really say in Christ. Because what we have to understand here, guys, is that Jesus Christ, biblically, historically, theologically, is not two persons. He is one person with two natures, right? Picture this. I don't have a whiteboard here. So picture a whiteboard and I'm writing a circle on it. You guys see this circle? 
I'm writing a circle on it. And inside of the circle, which by the way, represents the divinity of the second person of the Blessed Trinity, right? Inside this circle, I'm gonna draw two smaller circles, one here and one here. I'm gonna put an H in one. See that H right there I just did? See that H? There you go, right there. And I'm gonna put a D over here. Bam. So we got a D and an H inside this circle, symbolizing the fact that we have a human nature and a divine nature subsisting in the one person of Jesus Christ. What well, And by the way, this is why the Council of Chalcedon would define infallibly following the Council of Ephesus in 431, the hypostatic union that is in the one hypostasis, which is the Greek term they chose to use for person, even though it didn't quite mean person. They kind of chose and used it for person. In fact, St. Jerome didn't like that. He didn't like using hypostasis because it technically isn't what hypostasis meant. But the church often does that. The church has to baptize words sometimes to describe the mysteries, right? Because language fails when it comes to the great mysteries of our faith. And so the church chose hypostasis for pers person in Greek, Latin, persona. So Christ is the one hypostasis or person and who possesses two natures, that H and that D, so that each one of those natures has as its subject the divine person. Are you with me? Right? So the second person of the Blessed Trinity now experiences things like learning to walk, learning to talk, experiencing pain, all of that. God never experienced that before, but guess what he did? Hence, we can say God was born, God suffered, God died when we talk about Christ, right? That's the hypostatic union. And it's crucial because in order to be the savior, I can't emphasize this enough, guys. In order to be the savior, Jesus, according to the revelation we've been given, had to be both God, or no, the H is over here, man <laughs> and God. Why? Because we, in our sins, have been separated infinitely from God, right? One sin against an infinitely holy God results in an infinite separation. We cannot bridge an infinite separation because we don't have infinite power. We can't offer anything to God that would make up for this infinite gap. Hence, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Takes upon himself a human nature so that he can offer a sacrifice. Because remember, as God, he can't sacrifice. He can't suffer, he can't die, he can't do any of that stuff. He can't merit, because in order to merit, you've got to overcome obstacles. He couldn't do that as God. But in Christ becoming a man and taking upon himself our wayfaring state, he had to overcome, he had to suffer, he had to die. But because, follow me on this guys, because the human nature has as its subject, not a human person, but a divine person. That human nature and human sacrifice receives an infinite dignity. Hence, he could offer an infinitely dignified sacrifice that could take away the sins of the world. And he also had to be man because he couldn't 
offer a sacrifice unless he was man. Plus a third reason, it was fitting for man to sacrifice for the sins of man. But here's the problem. Uh, what Dr. Walter Martin did is he effectively, and mind you, in the process of denying Mary's the mother of God, young people, I hope you're catching this. In the process of denying Mary's the mother of God, what he, whoop, let's put our circle back up here, right? What he ended up doing is he took that H out of the circle and he put it way over here somewhere, right? So what did he just do? He removed the human nature from the divine person and puts it over here. And you know what you have? You have a dude. That's what we would say in California. You have a dude who has no power to save anybody, right? Because as a human person, even a perfect human person does not have the power to save anybody. So you see, my friends, in denying Mary's the mother of God, Dr. Walter Martin ended up losing Jesus. He lost who Jesus was. And even worse, in his book, Kingdom of the Cults, I think it's on page 103, as I recall, in the 1977 edition that I had, he then in the next breath says, see, the Catholics got it all wrong. They teach that Jesus is the eternal son. He's not the eternal son. There's no such thing as an eternal son because he says sonship applies to humanity, not divinity. <laughs> You're right, brother. I can see your eyebrows went up like this. <laughs> That's right. He said sonship doesn't apply to divinity. It's only humanity. There is no eternal son. He's the eternal word who became the son. And then in the next breath, he says, neither is there an eternal father. Because if sonship only applies to humanity, time, change, fatherhood goes as well. And so Dr. Walter Martin ended up losing the blessed trinity in the process of denying Mary's mother's God. So that's just a little snippet. Let's move to the Immaculate Conception real quick. I'll try to make this a little faster. But the Immaculate Conception, in my book, I go through eight reasons why we know Mary is immaculately conceived. And I'm just going to do one of the eight right now. <clears throat> and maybe we can, you know, talk about some more during our Q&A. But the first that I, I mention in my book is rooted in the angel Gabriel's message to the Blessed Virgin Mary. As you guys know, in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, the angel Gabriel is sent by God to a young, probably 14 or 15-year-old little girl to announce to her that she is being called to be the mother of God, the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 33 says, whose kingdom shall have no end. And of course, Mary responds as perpetual virgin, which we'll talk about in a minute. How shall this be? For I know not man, which indicates as the great Jerome, St. Jerome, St. Epiphanius, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine all sang in chorus, the question betrays the vow, right? The question doesn't even make sense unless you understand she had a vow of virginity. But she basically says, how is this going to happen? Because I don't know man. And the angel says, I'll tell you how the power of the Most High will overshadow thee, right? Which, therefore, the child which shall be born in thee shall be called the Son of God. But the key here is how does the, the angel greet Mary? He greets her in a most 
unexpected way. And this is something our Protestant friends miss. Uh, and I, I, I must admit, I stole this from Pope St. John Paul the Great in his encyclical letter of 1987. That's March 25th of 1987. Uh, Redemptoris Mater, that is Mother of the Redeemer, a brilliant encyclical. He points out when the angel greets Mary, he says, Kyrie, Kekaitomene, or hail, she who has been perfected in grace or completed in grace. And what's astonishing here, and I'll do this real quick, is when the angel says, hail, Kyrie, you expect a name to follow. Because generally speaking, guys, see, where's my Bible? Uh, generally speaking, when you find, there it is, when you find the word Kyrie or Kyrene, depending upon how it's used in the Greek, in the immediate vicinity, you're going to find a name. For example, in John chapter 19, verse 3, famously, remember when the Romans were uh, torturing Jesus and beating him and mocking him. They say to him, hail what? King of the Jews. Remember that in John 19, 3? Hail, King of the Jews. That's kind of, you know, it's a mocking thing, but it, in Greek, you, you kind of expect when you have Kyrie, or there it's Kyrene, you expect a title or a name to follow. So it's hail king of the Jews. Another example is uh, Claudius Lysias when he writes to the governor Felix. These are two Roman prelates writing or one writing to another. Uh, it says Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greeting. Again, that's Kyrie. So it's greeting oh most excellent governor Felix. Are you with me? See, so Kyrie, you expect a name to follow. But what happens? Pope St. John Paul II points out, the angel doesn't say, Hail Mary. The angel says, Hail, full of grace. And what blew my mind 34 years ago in reading this encyclical when it came out actually 33 years ago is it is a name the angel is giving mary a name or a title not a name in the sense of a surname right that you use but a name in the sense of in in sacred scripture we find like in isaiah 7 14 his name shall be called emmanuel right referring to jesus or in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Now, you know, God did not mean that the Messiah would have to be named Emmanuel, you know, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. You'd get tired of naming all those names, right? But these are titles, names that characterize or give a sense of who the person is in, in, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, in Oriental culture, 
names, see, we miss that in our culture today, but names reveal something about the character or calling of the name. So these names become very, very important. Well, this name also reveals something about the character and calling of Mary because she is named she who has been perfected in grace, meaning she has no sin. And because it's a perfect passive participle, by the way, a perfect passive participle refers to a past completed action that results in a present state of being. So Mary is already filled with grace that is free from all sin. And because it's a name, it's permanent. For all time, she will be free from all sin, my friends, the immaculate conception. And real quick here, you know, people often ask me, well, why is it so important that we understand the immaculate conception? I argue that if you don't understand the immaculate conception, you don't understand who you are as a Christian. Because Mary is the ultimate example of the dignity that God bestows on us as Christians and the fact that God goes before us and prepares us the Blessed Virgin Mary was prepared in the womb of St. Anne by giving her the plenitude of grace to empower her to fulfill her calling. Just like you, John, you, William, you were probably little babies when you were baptized. Am I right? All you were doing is laying there pooping when the priest poured water on your forehead. And what happened? You were cleansed of original sin incorporated into Jesus Christ, given the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, the right to all the other sacraments in accordance with your calling, you became a son of God that day. You did absolutely nothing to merit it. Why? Because God goes before us and prepares us, gives us the grace to be able to accomplish our calling. The Blessed Virgin Mary is the ultimate example of that, how God uses men to change the world. Mary, she is the epitome of God choosing the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, as St. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, right? The foolish things of this world, just a 14-year-old little girl, and she changed the universe through her yes to God. Perpetual virginity of Mary, real quick. I'm going to do this real quick just by pointing out one of the errors that folks always, now we already mentioned in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, the, 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 the question, how shall this be for I know not man, definitively tells us Mary's perpetual virgin. Otherwise, the question doesn't make sense. But I'm going to focus on this. What about the brothers of the Lord, right? What about Matthew 13, 55, where you have James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? You have four brothers. Well, if there's brothers, that means Mary had other kids, right? Wrong. As you and I know that the term brother has a wide semantic range, especially in Old Testament, you know, Hebrew, and in the Aramaic that the Jews spoke, it had a particular range. And in Greek as well, it had a wide semantic range, but it does not just mean uterine brother. That is from the same uterus or from the same mama in a physical sense. In fact, brother is used all over for various relations, but very importantly, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church points out in paragraph 500, again, that's paragraph 500 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Catechism points out that those brothers of the Lord are mentioned later 
as having a mom. That is James and Joseph. Remember, I mentioned James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Well, James and Joseph are mentioned 14 chapters later in Matthew 27, verse 56. But this time their mom is mentioned. And it ain't the mother of God. It's another Mary that we believe to be Mary of Clopas, who is also mentioned here at the foot of the cross or in the vicinity of the cross in John 19, verse 25. But the bottom line is her name is Mary, but it's not Mary, the mother of God. And she's the mother of James and Joseph. What does that tell you? James and Joseph are not uterine brothers. They're some sort of relation, probably cousins. And then you also have the fact, and I'll just do this one real quick, that James, the Lord's brother, is explicitly mentioned in Galatians 1.19. You guys remember this one? Remember this one? Galatians 1.19, St. Paul is telling a story of many years before when he first converted. Remember, he spent three years preaching around the Damascus area. And after the three years, he says, I went up to Jerusalem to see the apostles, right? But while I was there, or actually he went up to see Peter. I went up to see Peter. And while I was there, now why would he go up to see Peter? To get approval, right? And when he goes up to see Peter, he says, none other of the apostles did I see except James. The Lord's brother. Aha! This is an interesting point. And by the way, John Calvin brings this point out in his commentary on the Synoptic Gospels. John Calvin points out here that obviously James, the Lord's brother, is one of the apostles. Because none other of the apostles did I see except James, the Lord's brother. And as, and as John Calvin points out, he's not talking about apostle in the loose sense of say, you know, Barnabas in Acts 14, 14, who's also referred to as an apostle in a loose sense. No, he's talking about going up for approval to the apostles who were apostles before him. That's referring to the big 12, not to, you know, some loose sense of, of apostle. John Calvin said that. And so all we have to do is take a look at, okay, so James, the Lord's brother, is also an apostle. Well, there's only two Jameses that are apostles. This can't be the first James because he's the son of Zebedee who Herod cut his head off in Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, very early on. So it can't be him. Well, that narrows it down. Two minus one is one. And who's the other one? James, the less, as he's called. Well, if you go to Luke chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, guess what? His dad is mentioned, but it ain't Joseph. He's called the son of Alphaeus. So again, for these and other reasons we could look at, of course, Mary is perpetual virgin and the arguments used against it fail one by one. Finally, by way of introduction, the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And you know, in my book, Behold Your Mother, uh, I have a couple of chapters on this. And the, the second chapter, after I, uh, the, the first chapter on the assumption is called Raised by Love, where I give uh, biblical proofs for the assumption, as well as historical proofs. But then I, 
uh, in the next chapter, I answer objections. And the exciting thing about the assumption is not only do we have, and I'm sorry, guys, I know there are some Catholics who are very wrong about this. I run into Catholics and we don't really have biblical proof. Yes, we do. I mean, what do you mean by proof? Do we need to have a photograph or a video shot of Mary going up through the clouds? No, we don't have that. But what we do have is biblically speaking, Revelation chapter 12, the woman clothed with the sun, on her head a crown of 12 stars, on her head a crown of 12 stars, under her feet the moon. And who is this woman? Is it the Old Testament people of God? Is it the church? Yes, both by illusion. But as Pope Benedict XVI says, no one can deny on a literal level the first sense of this text. It's Mary. Because in verses four and five, she gives birth to Jesus, the man child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, quoting Psalm chapter two, a messianic psalm. There is no doubt who the mother of Jesus is. That's Mary. Right. And there we have her depicted. Come on, folks, in heaven. And some will say, well, a lot of people are in heaven. Yeah. but with a head and with feet, juxtapose that with Revelation 6, 9, where the same apostle John writes about the martyrs in heaven. How does he refer to the martyrs? He says, the souls of the martyrs are in heaven. Amen? Why is that important? Because they don't have bodies, right? Because they have not been resurrected yet. They are in heaven but they don't have bodies. Mary is depicted not just in heaven, but bodily with a head and with feet. And even more, I gotta tell you guys, even more definitive for me than seeing her bodily in heaven. And by the way, for those who would argue, no, it's just the people of God or maybe the church. I always found the church just not to be a good, I mean, by illusion, yes, we can say the people of God or the church, but, you know, Mary, think about it. Mary gives birth to Jesus, right? The church doesn't give birth to Jesus. If anything, Jesus gives birth to the church. That's just, it's not a good thing to say the church in the first sense. Mary, literally, in the first sense, is obviously the woman, right? But for those who would, you know, argue, I'm still saying it's a church. It, 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 she, it, she's a symbol of the billion members of the church or whatever. There's a problem with that exegetically. As I point out in my book, guys, that if you look at the characters here, okay, let's put the woman. If I had my whiteboard up here, we could write the woman. Let's look at the four main characters of Revelation 12. You got the woman, you got the man child, that's Jesus Christ. You got the dragon, which is told to us to be that old serpent from Genesis 3, Lucifer, the devil. And then you have the archangel Michael. So you got three obvious persons. Mary, or uh, not Mary yet, we're, we're just calling it the woman, right? You got Jesus, you got the devil, and you got the archangel. And you've got a reference to that old serpent, which throws you back to Genesis chapter three, where you also had four main characters. You had Adam, Eve, the devil, and the angel. Remember the angel with the flaming sword? There you have the four main characters. 
Here we have the four main, well, we're leaving the woman out for now, right? You got Jesus, you got the devil, you got the archangel Michael, and who is this fourth person? Do we really want to say that, oh, it's a billion people or two billion people? No, it doesn't fit exegetically. Four persons in Genesis 3, three persons in Revelation 12, of course, the woman in the first sense on the literal level is a real person, Mary, bodily in heaven. But again, last point, and then we'll have some fun. All right. Revelation eleven nineteen, Brothers, this is the one that I missed as a Protestant. And when I saw this all those years ago, it blew my mind right out of my ears. And that is in Revelation eleven nineteen. And remember in the original Greek text, there were no chapters and verses, guys. And, you know, generally speaking, the chapters and verses are really well put together. It was done about, you know, over a thousand years ago. And uh, actually, it wasn't one person. It was done over a period of time, both Old and New Testament, of about 300 years it took. And they do a good job. But every once in a while, you say, ah, you shouldn't have divided it there. Because Revelation 11:19 should flow right into 12:1. Because what do you have? 12:1 is the woman clothed with the sun. But what do you have in Revelation 11:19? John is seeing heaven oh this is so good and what does he see he says i saw the temple in heaven now let's pause what would that temple be would that be that big old building that took 46 years to build back at the time of jesus of course not it's not talking about a big stone building being in heaven this is not about types this is about fulfillments what is the temple, the Bible tells you. In fact, John the Apostle, the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the book of John. And in John chapter 2, verse 19, remember Jesus said, destroy this temple and what? And in three days, what? I will raise it up again. Go to verse 21. The temple he spoke of was his body. The true temple is the body of Christ and not the church, folks, we who are baptized, but the same body that suffered and died and was raised from the dead. That's the new temple. In fact, if you go to Revelation 21, verse 22, in the book of Revelation, John says, he sees heaven and he says, and I saw no temple. There was no temple for the temple is almighty God and the lamb. The lamb, which refers to the physical body of Jesus, is the physical temple. Almighty God is pure spirit. You can't see. It's the body of Christ. His physical body is the temple. All right. It says that I saw the temple and I saw in the temple the ark of the which we've already seen is the Blessed Virgin. That blew me away 33 years ago, guys. Why? Because Mary is revealed to be the ark. When he sees the ark, is he seeing that old box from Exodus 25 made out of acacia wood overlaid with gold? Of course not. He's not seeing Old Testament types. He is seeing New Testament fulfillments. 
the New Testament fulfillment is Mary and not just Mary, but like we see in Revelation 12, one, a head and feet, the ark represents Mary's body, the body that carried Jesus Christ, just as the old covenant ark carried the three types of Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews chapter nine, verse four, Aaron's rod, which budded, which of course, symbol of the high priesthood, Jesus is our high priest, Hebrews 3, one. Uh, sampling of the manna, the bread from heaven, which John 6 tells us, Jesus is the manna. And the 10 dabar, the 10 words, right? The 10 commandments, dabar also means word, the 10 words written in stone. Well, who is the word made flesh? But Jesus Christ, Mary carries the fulfillment of those three types. Mary is the true Ark of the Covenant, which means Mary is bodily in heaven. That's just a little synopsis, guys, of the four Marian dogmas. What's exciting about being Catholic is this stuff makes sense, don't you think? All right. Thank you so much, Mr. Staples. Th that talk was amazing. And uh, like he said before, I can't recommend his book enough. Um, you, If you thought uh, this was interesting, that was just like a little snippet of what he has to say. My personal favorite is um, Perpetual Virginia Argument, Parlambano. Uh, that's my personal favorite from your book. Awesome. So, yeah, it's amazing. It's it's truly amazing. It, it uh, really is. And a lot, you know what, brother? How old are you? I'm 15. You are 15. Trust me, there are a lot of scripture scholars that don't know about what you just said. That text from Matthew chapter one is amazing because as you know, uh, when the scripture says in verse 18, before they came together, Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. The, the Greek word there is soon elfane, which does mean to come together in a conjugal union. Soon elfane, come together with, right? But then when Joseph discovers, oh my goodness, she's, she's pregnant and he knows as a just man, Deuteronomy 24 verses one through four, he had to divorce her. That was the old law, right? Both Deuteronomy 24, one through four, Jeremiah three verses one and two, both refer to that fact. He had to divorce her. And being the just man, he didn't want her to be publicly humiliated. He was gonna apolusai in Greek, divorce her quietly. And it was right then when he's ready to put her away, the angel says, fear not. For the child conceived in her is of born of the, or will be born of the Holy Spirit, or is actually conceived of the Holy Spirit. Joseph would have known immediately, being the just man that he was, filled with the Spirit as he was, he would have known. For example, the story of David. You remember this, brother? David from 2 Samuel 16 and 20, where David's son Absalom attempted to take the kingdom from his father. He had generals on his side. He had the people on his side. And the one of the prophets actually said to him, if you take his wives, take some of David's wives, you will complete the coup d'etat. The ultimate humiliation in a tribal society is to take the wives of a king. You've humiliated him. You put him under your thumb and the kingdom will be yours. And so he takes the 10 concubines of David, goes in unto them, as scripture says, before all of Israel. In other words, he made it known all over Israel. And he thought 
the coup d'etat was complete. Of course, it didn't work. Absalom died an ignominious death. But after Absalom's coup was thwarted and he died, David then knew that even though, according to the law of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, he could never have conjugal relations with them again, he was responsible to take care of them. Because remember, this is an ancient patriarchal culture where women need men to take care of them. He knew he had to receive them into his home, and he did. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3. David has those 10 concubines brought back into his palace. It says he could never have conjugal relations with them again. They dwelt with him, but living as widows. Well, in the same way, St. Joseph would have known as soon as the angel said, and the Holy Spirit speaking through the angel, said the child conceived in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Fear not to as you pointed out, paralambano, literally to receive alongside your wife, Mary, or literally to walk alongside, he would have known. He must receive her. And by the way, it then says that he took Mary into his home, right? Or as their own in Greek. He took Mary into his home, but of course, he could never have conjugal relations with her because she is the spouse of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why the fathers of the church were so incensed when the first Christians started to deny the perpetual virginity of Mary, like Helvidius in the fourth century that Jerome pounced upon, or Bonasus, who St. Ambrose pounced upon. It was, how dare you even posit the possibility? That's blasphemy. She is the temple of God. She's the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, for sure. And uh, one thing you mentioned real quick, because I do want to move into questions. I could talk about to you about this for hours. But one thing you mentioned real quick is um, when it says uh, Joseph took Mary to his house, I did, a, uh, I did a word search of that in the Greek and Bible gateway. It's the word assemble. It's not the traditional word for marriage. It's the word assemble. And it was used uh, in Acts when everyone assembles for like a church service. So yeah. it's, a, it's a different word than the conjugal uh, relations. Oh, yes. It, and in the Greek text, it is so, you know, it, it's, you know, folks who in the first century, in the early century spoke Greek, it was like, it would have been blaring to them. Like, oh, of course, it jumps out at you. But unfortunately, in the English translations, you don't see it quite as well. Yeah, for sure. All right, with that, uh, I'm not going to be the only one talking. Does anyone have any questions for Mr. Staples? One quick thing, though. Uh, Mr. Staples, we have some people from dif different uh, faiths here joining us. Great. So if you are from a different faith, then uh, be sure to just please be respectful. And um, yeah, and then we'll move on to questions. Sure. So with that, the first question I see is from Michael. So uh, Michael, you can go ahead and unmute yourself. Okay, I'm not hearing. Michael, Michael Donahue. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. I'm mute. Oh, perfect. Thanks very much. 
I have a I have a fair few questions. So if I'm taking up too much time, please just um, skip over. But they're they're all questions relating to the Immaculate Conception and Great. some of the objections that I've heard about them. Um, so the first one I'm sure you've heard before is essentially the as it were, the infinite regress. Like if Catholics believe the mother of God was purified before her birth so that from her um, might be born the pure Christ, uh, right. they're going to say, well, you know, if the pure Christ could be born only, if the Virgin might be born pure, then the same for Mary. It would be necessary that her mother, St. Anne, and then her mother's mother and so on, all the way down to Adam, essentially, you'd need an entire chain of people who were um, pure from original sin. So what would be the response to that? Right. There's a twofold response. And thank you, Michael, for the question. And it is a significant question because, as you may know, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux had that question in the 12th century. That was one of the reasons why he rejected the Immaculate Conception. He could not conceptualize it. That was uh, just before Thomas Aquinas, who also rejected it. But it really hadn't been fleshed out. There was a, a, a ninth century father of the church, um, uh, what, what was his name, Paschius Radbertus, who had taught really what Duns Scotus would, would later, and William of Ware, who was Duns Scotus's teacher in the 14th century, would teach concerning that preservative salvation. But it didn't seem to catch on until William of Ware and Duns Scotus. So they, they you know, Again, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux had this, this same problem, but here is the key. And there's two principles you wanna remember. Number one, when we are talking about the various gifts that God gave to Mary, we are not talking about some kind of natural necessity, right? It's not that, look, <laughs> I mean, theologically speaking, Jesus didn't even have to be incarnate to save us. God could save us in any number of ways because he is all powerful, right? He could just say, William, I forgive you. I mean, I can forgive you, William, if you sin against me. I can't forgive you if you sin against God. I, but I can forgive. God can forgive us, uh, you know, in any number of ways because he's all powerful. But of course, as the great 20th century theologian, uh, Charles Jornet uh, points out, uh, he wrote two masterpieces, one on the sacrifice of the mass and one on the church. But he says that in Christ, we see the universe of nature transformed into a universe of redemption, right? God could forgive us, but he couldn't redeem us, in, you, know, you know, without the incarnation and without Christ. What do you mean? Because in order to truly redeem, think about redemption, you're buying something. If you go to the store and you buy a Coke, you give the dude the money, you've redeemed that Coke. It's yours. You own it because you redeemed it, right? You gave equal value to that Coke. So it's yours. Now, what if you steal it, right? That's not redemption, right? Uh, now, the store owner could say, oh, I forgive you. Just keep it. That would be forgiveness, but it would it still wouldn't be redemption because there's an inequity there, right? So in the redemption, of course, God could have forgiven us, but he couldn't, or, or I, I should say God doesn't have to redeem us. He could forgive us, but there wouldn't be redemption. God will for us to experience a true justification where we are transformed from the inside out, right? So that we are truly 
redeemed and ha can have a relationship with God, but one of equity, not that we're equal to God, but we are truly justified in him, with him, and through him, which is astonishing, right? So I, bring, I say all that to say this, we're not talking about natural necessity here, even with regard to Christ, you know, coming in, in the flesh. Certainly, when, it, when we're talking about Mary, there's no natural necessity at all. God could have chosen to be born through a prostitute, if he willed to, okay? So we say in Catholic theology, God didn't have to do it this way, but he did do it in a most fitting way. And then when you add the fact of the revelation we've received, it becomes necessary because of the revelation that Mary was prophesied to be the Ark of the Covenant, the beginning of the new creation. If you read my book, I have all sorts of Old Testament types that, you know, prophesied that Mary would, in fact, be the Immaculate Conception. So we're not talking about natural necessity. So for 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 St. Bernard of Clairville, if I could have lived back then, I would have said St. Bernard. Well, he wouldn't have been a saint yet, but I would have said, Bernard, there's no natural necessity here. God could choose to intervene at any time he willed or not at all in, in you know, Mary's life or St. Anne's life or, or, and so forth. So there's no natural necessity, number one. But number two, what we see revealed in sacred scripture is the fact that God chose to, oh, oh, no, I got to make three points. I'm going to make three points. Before I make this point, remember this as well. There is a, <laughs> well, you know what, I, I'll, I'll, I'll do it this way. Okay, let's make three points. The second point I will make is that in Revelation, what we see is God chooses to intervene in partic at particular times and in particular ways that typify the incarnation of Christ. For example, in the Ark of the Covenant, which I mentioned briefly, God gives Moses in Exodus chapter 25 explicit instructions as to how to construct the Ark. You're going to make it out of acacia wood. He gives the parameters. You will overlay it with the purest of gold, of course, symbols of purity, with the wooden staves that go through the golden rings on the side, wooden staves also overlain with the purest of gold. All of this, God prepares in a special way what would be his dwelling place, right? So God didn't intervene in the particular acacia tree that they cut down he intervened after they cut it down and they put it together in the particular way that they did as a preparation for housing the three types of jesus christ and it was consecrated by god god consecrates the ark not and here's the key not just what's inside of it but the ark itself, in fact, it's so holy, the ark, that no one could touch it or even look inside to it. In fact, the punishment was death for even looking inside the ark. And as you know, 1 Samuel chapter 6, uh, 1 Samuel 6, 19 through uh, chapter 7, verse 2, if you read that whole section there, 
you'll see the men of Bethsaida, 70 of them were killed, right? These were pagans who captured the ark. <laughs> they were dropping like flies because every time they touched it or even looked inside of it, they dropped dead. They finally sent the thing back to Israel because they were all going to be dead, right? Or Uzzah, who just touched the ark, he was killed. But notice in both instances, the, the scripture doesn't say because of what was inside the ark, even though we know it's because of what's inside the ark that the ark is holy. The scripture emphasizes the holiness of the ark. Yeah. That serves to be the dwelling place of those three holy objects that symbolize Jesus Christ. So there is a preparation that God does, right? And, and that's just one image of the Ark of the Covenant. He intervenes in and prepares the dwelling place of God. Hence, he prepares Mary. He didn't prepare St. Anne, although St. Anne was very holy. Uh, he prepares Mary because Mary is to be the dwelling place of God. And that brings me to the third point. And that is that there is an essential difference between who Mary carries in her womb and who St. Anne carries in her womb, right? In fact, there's an infinite difference because Mary carried Almighty God. St. Anne carried a human person, a great human person, yes, but not Almighty God. Hence, Mary had to be prepared in a much more radical way to be that dwelling place for God. And I'll mention another, you know, there's lots more we could look at here, but in, you know, in the tradition, Mary is referred to as not just Ark of the Covenant, she's the new Eve, of course. Hence, you know, we, once you understand that, my goodness, when you understand as, as the great uh, uh, John Cardinal Newman, the Anglican convert who phenomenal, wrote the essay on Mary, the new Eve, that's phenomenal. Uh, but when you understand Mary is referred to as woman, Jesus never calls her mother in all the gospels. Sure, he called her mother, but it's not in scripture, right? He only calls her woman. The woman of John 2 to 5, John 19, 26, eight times John refers to her as woman, woman, woman. Why? She is the fulfillment of the prophetic woman, Bune, from the Septuagint, of Genesis 3.15 and Jeremiah 31.22. That is the new Eve who would undo all, you know, as, as St. Irenaeus said in the second century, she would undo the knot that was tied by the first Eve through her obedience. And just as Eve brought death to her children, Mary brings life to all of her children when she says, let it, be un, let it be done unto me. But here's the key. If the Old Testament Eve was created in perfection without sin, it would be absurd to say the new Eve could be born in sin because New Testament fulfillments are always more glorious, not less so than their Old Testament types. And we, we could go through many but like this, we see how Mary was prepared by God and prophetically from the Old Testament to be that special dwelling place. It becomes very, very obvious that she is the Immaculate Conception. Well, I do have one more question, but I don't want to take up time. So if the, if the other guys don't want me to ask a second question, that, that's fine. And I'll, 
Hey, I liked your first one. Go ahead. Okay, sure. Thanks very much. Um, so the the next one I was thinking about um, is essentially, um, in what way would it follow, given what happens to Mary, that God saves men apart from their will? In other words, predetermining certain ones before their birth to salvation. So would the response simply be to recognize that Mary was in the same boat as Eve? In other words, both had sanctifying grace from their first moment of existence. Or is there something here that God saved Mary aside from her will? Now, obviously, it doesn't sound correct. He literally asked her, like, are you going to have my son? She said, yes, yeah, be it done to me according to thy word. Yeah. Um, but do we do we want to say that Mary could have said no to Gabriel? Or do we sort of say that somehow she just, you know, was always going to say yes? Because then the sort of that would sort of take away from her victory because you'd sort of have the principle of no victory without an adversary, I suppose. Yes, well... This really is a matter of revelation because God could have done it in any number of ways. God could, when you, if you want to speculate, I mean, God could have given everyone sufficient grace to that they would freely choose Jesus Christ, right? Um, and any time he willed to. You know, the St. Paul refers to the mystery of iniquity in Second Thessalonians chapter two, because it is a mystery. You know why God does. I mean, we, we do at some point have to say with St. Paul, who are you to, you know, to uh, answer back to almighty God? Why have you made me thus? Because God, you know, the, the catechism of the Catholic Church points out, you know, being infinite, God could have always created a better creation than he did. You know, because once you create something and you're infinite, well, that creation is infinitely beneath you, right? There are literally infinite gradations, but in God's infinite wisdom, he created a beautiful creation. So my, my point is to say this, what we know through revelation and the teaching of the church is God has put such a premium on free will, there's something so profound, and my gosh, John Calvin blew it. There's something so profound about free will that he gave the angels, the other rational creatures that we know of, that freedom as well. He created them in statu vie, in a state of journeying, and even though we believe that state would have only lasted <laughs> an instant because they were pure spirits. They saw everything. They saw God's challenge to them, their, their, their trial and such. We could get into that, but that would take a while. And they chose. One third of the angels chose against him. Two thirds of the angels chose for him. And God, of course, gave them the grace to where they could have all, every one of those angels could have chosen God, but they chose themselves instead. They rejected God's plan. Well, the Blessed Virgin Mary and all of us as human beings are no different. Now, God goes before in the case of the Blessed Virgin Mary, just like as uh, I think I mentioned to you guys earlier, those of you that were baptized as little babies, God gave you grace before. He didn't need your, your okay to bring you into a relationship with Jesus Christ any more than he needed the Old Testament people of God's permission to bring them into a covenant relationship with him through circumcision. God can do that because he is God. However, 
God chooses in the covenant, though he prepares us, he gives us the grace through baptism. He prepared Mary for her calling through the Immaculate Conception. There is a choice. And in the case of the Blessed Virgin Mary, yes, she could have chosen because she's not God. She was not only in a wayward state, but she did not have the beatific vision. Therefore, we have to say she could have chosen uh, not to obey. She could have in theory, but of course, in the predestined plan of God, God knew that she would not. Hence, we have the revelation of, of, of the fact that Mary would not, but we have, we have to say she could have. There's the distinction between Mary and Jesus. Jesus could not sin. It would be impossible for Jesus to sin because of the hypostatic union, because the human nature is joined to the divine nature in the hypostatic union. It's impossible for him to sin because in order for him to sin, God would have to sin. And that's impossible. It's a substantial union, you know, in the hypostatic union, but Mary does not have that. So we say could, but in God's predestined plan, of course, she didn't. Does that get at your question? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. Um, I suppose the final last note's a short question, which is why I'm comfortable asking a second. I don't really want to take up too much time. But okay. um, when it comes to um, Eastern Orthodox, obviously they differ from us in that they would hold to Mary's sinlessness, but not from conception, right? So they, they would deny the Immaculate Conception. So I was Correct. wondering, I've heard, now I might be wrong, that some Eastern Orthodox theologians do accept the Immaculate Conception. Um, yes. The, is it permissible for them to hold that or not? And then finally, are there any non-Latin fathers who specifically teach sinlessness, sinlessness that isn't merely personal sin, but also original sin from conception that I could look into? Oh, sure. Yeah, check out my book because I, I give you a number of them. Uh, St. Ephraim, but you have to remember when, uh, you know, St. Ephraim and many of the fathers referred to Mary as Panhagia, all holy. St. Ephraim in his Nisabine hymns, number 27, in fact, as I recall, I'm pretty sure it's number 27. These are ancient Syrian hymns that were sang in the liturgy. Um, he, he places Mary, I'm so <laughs> almost blasphemous, he places Mary and Jesus on a par, but he's not referring to obviously their essential, um, you know, dignity or, or their essence, but he is referring to sinlessness, how they, they both do not have any stain whatsoever. That's what you find among the Eastern fathers. They will often refer to her like St. Ephraim does. Check out my book because I have a, <coughs> a number of, of uh, examples like that that refer to her as all holy. Here's the, the great um, homily. If you've not read, it's I, I argue the two greatest homilies ever preached on the Blessed Virgin Mary. The first and greatest was preached by St. Cyril of Alexandria, of course, an Eastern father, on the floor of the Council of Ephesus, where, I mean, his, it, it, it's, it's beyond glorious how he proclaims her as, as free from all sin as well as a whole lot of other things, the cause of our salvation and so forth. And, it, and St. Bernard of Clairvaux also, uh, of course, he's not an Eastern uh, father, he's a doctor, but, but uh, Western, but St. Bernard 
of Clairvaux, who, who also denied the Immaculate Conception. It's funny when you say, you know, like some of these uh, Eastern fathers and such who, who would probably have denied the Immaculate Conception, it wasn't even their vocabulary early on, uh, taught Mary's freedom of all sin, from all sin, all holy and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, Bernard of Clairvaux is another example of that, because if you read his homily from in the 12th century called In Praise of the Blessed Virgin Mary, he does everything but call her sinless. So, you know, for, for Bernard, as well as um, Thomas Aquinas, and of course, St. Albert the Great, Thomas's teacher, who all denied the Immaculate Conception, they all also taught that Jesus was, or Mary was perfectly uh, purged of all sin and the fomes peccati, the tendency to sin, while she was in the womb. See, the, the difference between East and West, and to this day, I talk with Eastern, I have a friend who, in fact, I, I have his book right over here, uh, Father Lawrence Cleanwork. Have you heard of him? I'm Father Lawrence, what's that? I'm afraid not, no. Yeah, well, he's probably the best uh, Eastern Orthodox apologist I've ever read. He's, he's excellent. Timothy Ware is good. He's now Bishop Callistus, actually, but but um, uh, Father Cleanwork is, is better. Of course, it's flawed. Of course, he's not Catholic, <laughs> but but uh, it, it's it's really fascinating when you when you see that these these Eastern fathers and and some of the uh, the Orthodox today they reject the Immaculate Conception not because they don't believe it. It's because well, it was defined after the split, so I'm not accepting it. But when you sit down and talk with them, they basically believe it. Now, you also have, though, those who are hung up the same way Bernard was, the same way Thomas was. They do not accept, even though they'll conceptually say, okay, I get what you guys are saying. I'm just not buying it. The idea of preservative salvation. That's what obviously... Thomas and Albert and Bernard, they didn't understand that concept. Because if you look, for example, at the Summa, and, they, and this is the problem East and West. Conceptually, Thomas in the Summa Theologica, he, he puts it best. He says there's only two possible, and by the way, I wrote a paper on this when I was in the seminary. Uh, <laughs> I actually tried to defend Thomas. I lost. Um, but Thomas says there's only two possibilities. Mary either would have had to have been redeemed, right, before she was conceived or after she was conceived. And Thomas says it's impossible to be, uh, you know, um, to be redeemed before she was conceived because she didn't exist. That's absurd. So she had to have been redeemed afterward. And that's when he goes into that long dissertation about how it would have been in, in Thomas's mind at the instant of the passive reception. Remember in, in the, you know, that Aristotelian view of, of conception, you know, they didn't understand scientifically. The ovum wouldn't be discovered till the 19th century that, that you know, what Aristotle taught, of course, is that the blood and men, menstrual fluids mix with the sperm and over time, that's called the active conception that mixing that goes on over a period of time and then the passive conception happens. And over that period of time, there's the form that's coming together 
to form a baby. And when that form reaches that certain where it can be called a human, bam, you have the quickening. 40 days for the boys and 80 days for the girls. All of that based on, you know, bogus science. But the point is, Thomas said it would be at the instant of the passive conception that she would have been purified, you know, of, of all sin and even the film as Picati. So you do have Eastern Orthodox today who fall into that same thing. They would tell you, oh yeah, Mary was cleansed of all sin in the womb, but they just don't buy the, the Immaculate Conception when in, in fact, if you understand Mary as, and I do lots more than the New Eve, you know, the, the Kekaritomene, you know, full of grace, the New Eve, the beginning of the new creation, the daughter of Zion, and on. I give you eight examples biblically of why Mary's Immaculate Conception. When you understand the biblical typology and such, of course she's immaculately conceived. And that's what led the fathers and then the later doctors of the church to, to you know, rack their brains saying, we can't say, I mean, you can go all the way back to St. Augustine in his, um, oh gosh, that's the letter, one of the, the letters, it's the big one on the Donatists in section 36. Um, where he, not the Donatists, but the Plagians, where he says, I want to be clear, you know, concerning uh, the sin with regard to the Blessed Virgin Mary, because she would have been touched by sin in no way whatsoever, right? You have St. Augustine saying that, that Mary could never be touched by sin, but his own theology didn't allow, <laughs> because of course he believed wrongly that Original sin was communicated through the concupiscence of the parents in the sexual act. So, of course, because Anne, St. Anne and St. Joachim, you know, had normal conjugal relations, well, original sin had to be communicated. That was in Augustine's mind, or at least that's in his theology. But when it comes to Mary, he's like, I don't even want to talk about it. And he never answered the question, by the way. He said, I don't want to talk about it. Mary was not touched by sin in any way. But the problem was working that out theology that, that look, you know, working that out theologically took centuries. But, you know, that shouldn't be a surprise for us because look at the hypostatic union. It took 600 years to work that out, right? And we're talking about six ecumenical councils involved in working that out, you know, until 680. 681, you know, so, you know, it, 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 it takes time. I, and I find it fascinating, my Eastern Orthodox friends, they seem to be stuck in a middle age, you know, medieval mindset, unfortunately, because they lost the magisterium back in the year 1000. But at any rate, do we have time for another question or two? Yes, we do. Uh, we'll go Nate and then we'll go um, Andrew. So uh, Nate, go ahead. Hi, Tim. Can you hear me? Yes. Welcome. Hi. Thank you very much. Uh, and thanks for talking. Yes. Um, my question is about um, uh, the, the, the typology. And my question is specifically, why does typology uh, never fully match or almost never fully match up? There always seems to be some discontinuity. So yes. for the Revelation passages, um, Mary cried out in pain, but pain is a punishment from original sin. And Catholics say she didn't have that. And also there's the, um, the uh, ancient th thinking that she gave birth like light through glass. 
So there's uh, a discrepancy there that has to be reconciled. Then there's right. also her being the ark and having to rest. Oh, no, sorry, like how the ark came to rest for three weeks and how she went to rest with her, her cousin for three months. But the reason was because David feared the ark. He literally feared for his life and didn't want to bring it into the city. And that's not what happened with Mary. So when it comes to typology, why do we have to cherry pick? Yes, it's a great question. Well, typology, by definition, biblically speaking, cannot be a one-to-one -one representation, right? It's impossible for there to be a one-to-one -one representation because the nature of typology. Think of it this way, brother. In two places in scripture, in Colossians 2.16 and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, we have a great description of typology. Remember in Colossians 2.16, Paul says, let no man judge you with regard to meat or drink, right? Or with regard to the festivals, the new moons or the Sabbaths, which are mere shadows. They're, the substance is Christ, right? What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that the Old Testament, you know, don't eat this, don't drink that and keeping the, the yearly uh, holy days, the festivals, the monthly holy days, the new moons, and the Sabbath, which is the weekly, all of these are mere shadows, skia in Greek. Go to Hebrews 10.1. Here, the inspired author is talking about the types being the animal sacrifices, and we could add priesthood, though he's specifically referring here to sacrifices. He said, these are shadows, right? A substantial fulfillment is found in Christ and in the new priesthood, the Eucharist and such. Well, think about a shadow, my brother. There's a shadow down here on the carpet that is being reflected because of the light in my office right here. Now, I'd like to think I'm a little bit more substantial than my shadow on the floor, okay? So a shadow by definition is not gonna be a one-to-one -one representation of the substantial reality that brings about that shadow, okay? Now, think about this. Go to, for example, Psalm 69, which the New Testament refers to eight times as being a messianic psalm. Psalm 69, eight times, right? And yet it talks about forgive me of my sins right in the same breath of, of King David, who we believe actually wrote this. It's a prayer for deliverance and from persecution. And it's quoted, like I said, eight times in the New Testament as a type of Jesus. But right in the middle of it, it also says, forgive me of my sins. So does that mean Jesus had to sin? No. What it means is the fulfillments are always more glorious than the type and there can never be a one-to-one -one fulfillment does that help at all oh it's just that the, the more um substantial one of revelation is where mary did scream out in pain so okay, if you're let saying me answer that, that if you're saying that the, well, if you're saying that that's the more substantial thing then why don't we refer to that when it comes to uh, mary having original sin right okay well the reason is and by the way i have to say there is no Christian on this planet who has ever held that 
the pains of Revelation 12 refer to the head of Jesus passing through a birth canal. No one holds to that. No Protestant, no Orthodox, no one. Everybody holds to. Now, as Protestants, they believe that this is either the Old Testament people of God or the New Testament people of God, and it's not Mary. Hence, the, the labor pangs are not literal pains, right? Well, we as Catholics believe the same. These labor pangs are not the pangs of a head passing through a birth canal. No, they are much more substantial than that, my friend. We are talking about the prophecy right from the beginning, Mary knew, being, and Joseph as well, being the just man that he was filled with the spirit as well as the blessed mother, they would have known that, you know, with the, you know, being the mother of the Messiah, the Messiah was going to suffer greatly. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Wisdom chapter 2, we have profound text. But not only do we see, do we know that, but we have an angel, and then we have the prophet Simeon telling Mary a sort. And what's fascinating here is if you go to Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, Simeon says, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising in of many of Israel, and to be a sign of contradiction, which is spoken against. And that was days after her birth. Pierce your soul. That was days after she gave birth. That wasn't when she gave birth. Soul, suke, meaning she would suffer. And notice, this is set in the context of the cross, where Jesus would suffer physically on the cross. But Mary would suffer spiritually. Her lot was not to go to, she was not called to be a red martyr, but she was called to be a white martyr. And so we know already from the Gospels and from the prophetic texts that Mary's suffering would be spiritual. But of course, my friend, spiritual suffering is much more substantive than physical suffering. I mean, we know biologically a body will shut down. You can only suffer so much as a human being and your body will literally shut down. Your nerves don't react any longer. They go numb. But a heart that loves can never go numb. Mary was called to a more profound, more substantial suffering. And again, we know that from the gospels. So I would disagree with you that somehow labor pangs, physical, would be more substantial. That's just not true at all, biologically and theologically speaking. We have Romans 8.23. We have Jesus talking about the, the pangs of lab, labor that would come on Israel, Paul talking about all of us groaning together with the creation, and the, the Greek word there is labor pangs. So labor pangs are used all over the Bible in a spiritual sense. So obviously, if you understand Mary as the woman revealed in Revelation chapter 12 in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, we say, of course, those sufferings would be spiritual. Are, are we still there? Yes. Yes. Uh, all right. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, let's do one more question. So, uh, Andrew, you can go ahead and unmute.
I'm not hearing. Andrew? Okay, there we go. Yes, I'm here. Hello, ah, Mr. Staples. It's it's great to talk to you. Um, so I love how earlier you, um, when you were talking about uh, the divine personhood of Christ and his two natures, you made a distinction between the natures and his personhood. Um, yes. I wanted to ask a question about that because I'm, okay. I have some confusion on it. Okay. So I, if I understand correctly, the personhood of Christ would be in reference to his substance, which is the Godhead. Mm -hmm. And then his natures would be in reference to something else. But I was wondering if you could explain to a dummy like me, what would, how would you differentiate between uh, explaining uh, the divine substance and divine natures, uh, divine right. nature right. of Christ? Yes. Okay. Understand that whenever we're talking about distinctions in God, whenever we're talking about distinctions within the divine substance or within the divine essence, these are, are rational distinctions for our sake. There is no distinction in God between, you know, if there, well, we could say there's no, like, let's put it this way in a simple way. Think of the 14 attributes of God, right? Wisdom, power, unity, on and on and on, right? These are real distinctions, but they're distinctions that we make. You know, St. Paul uses the language, you know, I speak as a man, right? When he's talking about the mysteries of God, because we have to. When he's talking about predestination and such, I speak as a man because we're, we're looking up. So we make these intellectual distinctions between attributes. But in God, God is absolutely simple. There's no distinction. We won't know. We won't be able to comprehend that. In fact, some we won't comprehend at all. But we will be able to comprehend how his mercy is justice and his justice is mercy when we get to heaven. Uh, many argue. We won't be able to fully comprehend the divine essence, of course. But some things that are mysterious to us now, we will comprehend. Some things we won't. All right. Having said that, so when you're talking about the substance of God, what makes the thing what it is, there's no real distinction. There are intellectual distinctions that we make, right? When we talk about persons, there are, there are real distinctions, but they are relational distinctions not matters of essence. So there's a difference between talking about that which subsists within the substance, within the essence like attributes, and then talking about persons wherein there is real, there are real distinctions that subsist within the divine essence. Now, some theologians uh, balk at that and say, you don't wanna say within the divine essence, it's better to say, within the inner life of God, because we wanna be careful not to divide the essence, which you can't do. But I, I personally can, don't have a problem with using subsisted in, subsisted in the, the divine essence. Well, if, if somebody balks at that, say, okay, within the inner life, there are real relational distinctions which within the persons that are different than the intellectual distinctions that we make with regard to uh, you know, the attributes, right? Because those distinctions are intellectual distinctions we make that, he 
you know, in God, there is no distinction between power and wisdom and unity and love. There's no distinction whatsoever, but there is a distinction between the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because the Son is not the Father, right? The Father is not the Son, the Holy Spirit is not the Father and the Son. There's real relations, but that has nothing to do with essence, okay? Now, so when we're talking about person in distinction with substance, there's a real distinction, okay? And, but that's a relational distinction. And the only way I have found to, to kind of gr uh, grasp that is to think about a human being. In us, and, and you know, the only way we can get it, God is using analogy, in us, I have three relational distinctions. My being, my knowing, and my willing. They are really distinct because, you know, I existed, I was before I knew anything. And I will to know a lot of things that I don't know. So my being, my knowing, and my willing are really distinct, but they subsist in one being. It's not like my shoulder is my being, my other shoulder is my knowing, and my elbow is my willing. No, these are three relational distinctions that subsist in one being. So the relational distinctions do not add up to an essential distinction. So that's how you can keep substance distinct from person. Just remember, person is relational distinction. There's no distinction essentially between those, those persons. Now with the incarnation, you have a whole new ballgame because now you've introduced incarnation as a substantial union, right? As the Council of Chalcedon defined this is not an accidental union. I've heard some Catholics even say that, and I want to scream, don't say it's accidental. It's not. It's a substantial union, which is a great mystery. I think Thomas Aquinas does the best in, in helping us to uh, understand that in the incarnation, now hang on to your hat here. In fact, in my book, I believe it's in the chapters on the Immaculate Conception, I go into this a bit. Or is it Mother? It might be in the section on Mother of God, actually. I'm trying to remember now. Uh, yes, it is. It's in the chapters on the Mother of God. I go into this a bit. Now, in the incarnation, Thomas says there's a sense in which we say the incarnation happened in the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And there's a sense in which we say the incarnation happened outside of the Blessed Trinity outside of the second person. Are you familiar with this, Andrew? All right, this gets kind of heavy, but, but check it out. We have to make these distinctions. Well, the incarnation occurred in God only in as much as the two natures, and, and, and by the way, we have to make a, a very, very important distinction between the relationship between the divine nature and the divine person and the human nature and the divine person. There is a real distinction between those relationships because the divine nature, as I said before, that we're talking about the divine substance that cannot change in any way whatsoever, right? And so there can be no distinctions whatsoever within that divine substance. Whereas in the human nature, there can be all kinds of change. You know, Christ experienced all kind of change because he acquired a human nature. But 
we have to say that the human nature uh, or the incarnation and the acquiring of that human nature happened in God in as much as now the two natures, as I said in my presentation, have the same subject because Christ is not a human person. That's a heresy. Uh, poor Nestorius, right? Uh, and a lot of Protestants today, by the way, don't know it, but they, they teach that heresy. But uh, the, the divine nature and human nature have the same subject, the divine person, right? However, that's only in the sense that that human person has as its subject, the divine person that we can say it's in God. But in as much as there's change in the incarnation, because a human nature comes into being here, that's a change that cannot happen in God. Because I am the Lord, I change not in Malachi chapter three, verse six. So there's a sense in which the incarnation, in as much as there's change, that happens outside of God. But in as much as the human nature acquires a, 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 a divine substance or, or a divine uh, subject in the divine person, that happens in God. All of these distinctions are important to make in our Christology because they have lots of ramifications. But was there something else in particular that you had in mind that I didn't touch on? No, that was perfect. I think just to clarify, one could see the natures as just taking a different perspective on the same reality, right? Yes, but what true, but we also have to acknowledge the real distinctions. That's why I made the the, the distinction between the real distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and only the apparent distinctions of attributes, because we have a limited intellectual capacity. We can't comprehend how justice is mercy in God. And justice, wisdom, unity, power, all of the attributes have no distinction whatsoever in God, but they're intellectual distinction for our sakes. I speak as a man, whereas the, the relations are real distinctions, like my being, knowing, and willing are real distinctions, but subsisting in that one essence. All right, all right thank brother. You. Thank you so much, Mr. Staples. Uh, well, first of all, uh, we're sorry for keeping you so long. Uh, offer... My wife's probably wondering where I am. <laughs> <laughs> could you offer uh, just like some clo closing thoughts about how to continue as like uh, a group of youth and how to grow in our faith and then uh, closes yeah. in prayer? Yes, I, I would love to. You know, I, as as an apologist and you know, I've been very blessed to be director of apologetics and evangelization here at Catholic Answers. I have a, I think, a tremendous responsibility in uh, bringing the fullness of the gospel to the world, of course, to all who ask us. In fact, we bring it to some people who don't even ask us. <laughs> but um, uh, I always tell our apologists here that it's, it's great, it's wonderful that we dive into the mysteries of the faith as best we can. But first and foremost, we must never get away from the simple proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because ultimately what people need and are literally dying for, we have an epidemic of, of suicides going on right now in the United States over the last three, four years. It's been absolutely incredible. And the reason is because people are rejecting God. 
and they're falling so far away from God. We have a level of confusion like we've never seen before in our culture where people don't even know what it means to be a human being any longer, right? A male, you know, Genesis 1:27, male and female, he created them. Uh, people can't comprehend anymore with LGBTQRSTUV and whatever, right? And it, it's sad because people don't know who they are and they don't know who God is. And we always have to keep that focus that really the message of the gospel is simple. Believe in Jesus, obey him in his church. That was his message 2000 years ago. And it really is simple. Keep it simple in the proclamation. Bring people to Jesus and dive in because we spend our lifetimes then getting to know Jesus better and better every day and diving into these great mysteries, man. And, you know, I know there are a lot of folks out there who need to comprehend the mysteries first before they become Catholic, uh, before they become Catholic. And I get that. That's why we need to prepare ourselves intellectually to be able to help people intellectually. But I'm going to tell you something. Most people come to Jesus because they realize they're sinners and they need a savior. We can never forget that. Love people with the truth. Love them with the gospel. Lead them to Jesus. And man, we could change this nation and our world in one generation. All right. Thank you so much, Mr. Staples. Um, lead us close in prayer now. All right. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of faith. And we acknowledge it is just that, a gift. We've done absolutely nothing to merit the gift of faith that we have. And yet we know we're called to nurture and nourish this gift. And not only for our own salvation, but so that we might be instruments of God to bring this great gift of faith and salvation to others as well. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to dive in just a little bit more into the great mysteries of our faith. Help us to take them to heart. Keep our hearts and our minds open. Strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we may endure until the end and so be saved, but so that we might drag as many souls as we can with us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Staples. Thank you. Thank you. Again. God bless you.